It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and this is The Economist Asks. And this week, we ask pioneering behavioural economist Richard Thaler how his discipline can change the world for the better. Anybody ask me to sign a copy of Nudge, I always sign it Nudge for Good. Our own Philip Coggan talks us through behaviour and the markets. People are not particles in a physics experiment. They see what is happening and they react to what is happening and they change the fundamentals. And Professor Thaler also explains how his work is turning traditional economics on its head. It really pinpoints the weakness of economic theory which is assuming that everyone is as smart as the smartest economist. I'm joined in the studio by Richard Thaler, a professor of behavioural economics and author of Misbehaving, the Making of Behavioural Economics. He's an architect of nudge theory that helped to define the field and fresh off an appearance in the Oscar-nominated film The Big Short, where he dropped in to explain synthetic collateralised debt obligations alongside actress and pop star Selena Gomez. I'm also joined by Philip Coggan, our award-winning writer of books on finance and the behaviour of markets, tragically overlooked for a part in The Big Short. Philip is also Buttonwood columnist for The Economist. So, Richard, I would like to start with the big idea you're most associated with, nudge theory, and how you've taken that on. But when did it first crystallise for you and how? The origin of the idea of nudge actually came through an interrogation at the University of Chicago, otherwise known as a workshop, where I was talking about an idea of mine called Save More Tomorrow. The idea is that people saving in a pension plan, you invite them to sign up to increase their saving rate every year, say, when they get a raise. And we've shown this is extraordinarily successful at helping people save more. One of my colleagues said, yes, but... Sorry, isn't that paternalism, which is the biggest insult one can give at the University of Chicago? And I said, well, yes, but uh, there's no coercion here. So it's really an odd sort of paternalism. Maybe we can call it libertarian paternalism, which, of course, sentiment to fits. But it sent Cass Sunstein and I off thinking about the idea, which led to an article in the law review called Libertarian Paternalism is Not an Oxymoron, and then eventually to a book. Libertarian paternalism, Phil Coggan, is that an oxymoron to your mind, and does it matter? No, I don't think it does matter. It's what works that matters. And um, as the professor says, if it uh, encourages higher savings rates, which people need to have, then it's a perfectly acceptable policy. A lot of government is about encouraging people to do the right thing and discouraging them to do the wrong thing. And nudge policies are just an extension of what governments have been trying to do for hundreds of years. And how much do you distinguish then between homo sapiens and homo economicus when you make this kind of calculation as how you're going to nudge people? How much do people know and intuit about their own behaviour and how much do you need 
to push them towards what the right economic analysis may be, assuming the economists know. Well, of course, the latter point is a very good one. We have to be quite confident that if we're trying to encourage someone to do something, that it's actually in their best interest. We don't really need to know much about how close to homo economicus uh, the target audience is. Sure, there may be some Larry Summers or Joe Stiglitz among the people being nudged, but they can ignore it. And the rest of us probably need a little help in figuring out how much we need to save for retirement and what would be the best way to do it. That's an example pinned to something like saving for retirement, Philip Coggan. How well do you think behavioral economics and the idea of nudging us in directions which are deemed benign is actually working out in in the examples that that you see in the financial markets and beyond? Well, the best known example is probably auto-enrolment for pensions. It has worked in persuading people to take up pensions. The big question for the long run is, are people saving enough to provide for a decent retirement? The contributions in the British system uh, are very low and Uh, If people are persuaded that their retirement is going to be cosy as a result of these quite small savings rates, there is a danger that uh, people might get misled. I completely agree. And in fact, this this fact has been known since the very first paper on automatic enrollment, where it was noticed that some people uh, would have saved more had the default not been so low. The, the plan in Britain, where the automatic enrollment feature is working out splendidly, less than 10% opt-out, uh, the plan is then to gradually up the rate. Um, I think they could have picked a higher rate to begin with, um, but were cautious. It's essential that the save more tomorrow or automatic escalation aspect of this be included or will have people stuck at a very low rate. What happens then when this principle, you've talked, you called your book, Misbehaving the Making of Behavioral Economics. There is an idea that this shouldn't just apply to pensions, but it should be about public health. It should be about how we bring up our children. It should be about how we choose to feed ourselves. Richard, in which areas do you think behavioral economics has demonstrably made progress and where hasn't it? With the origin of these so-called nudge units, these are spreading all over the world and are taking on all sorts of problems from uh, encouraging people who owe money on their taxes to pay more promptly to helping people who are unemployed find a job more quickly. And it's important to stress that much of what nudging people is about is simply removing barriers. So automatic enrollment removes one very small step, which is filling out a form. But even a small step like that can get in the way of those of us who are lazy. So it sounds like quite a good way of getting money from people. But is it good at making them change the way that they do things or the way that they live more profoundly, Richard? The goal is not to change people. It's to make things easy. In the early days of the behavioral insight team, when I was working with them very closely, and we, we would go around talking from to one minister after another, and I found myself repeating the same phrase in every meeting, if you want to help people do something, make it easy. And that became the team mantra. And it's a mantra we can use in all aspects of life. And I should say 
that whenever anybody asks me to sign a copy of Nudge, I always sign it Nudge for Good, which is a plea, not an expectation. And it's not just the government that are nudging people. It's also the private sector, and it's often not for good. Philip Colgan, aren't you worried as someone who looks at the vagaries of the financial markets and also how governments interact and set the boundaries for them that maybe Nudge doesn't quite know enough? Maybe as nudges, nudging for good, as, as Richard nicely puts it, we simply don't know enough about what is going to happen or we might not take account of more perverse outcomes. The problem for finance is the future is essentially unknowable. So if we try to guide people to have, say, an an asset allocation that's mostly in the stock market, we don't know that it's not going to turn out like Japan and have the stock market lower in 25 years than it was before. If we encourage people via tax relief to buy houses, we might be encouraging them in the top of the market and causing them to lose money All these things have to be done in the context of the fact that the financial markets and the economy are always changing, and even very smart people don't know what the future will be. One example we could talk about is complex products such as mortgages. What can we do to help people choose the best mortgage when they're highly complicated? One policy that has been suggested and one that I favor is... Having a class of mortgages, let's call them easy mortgages, that will all have the same fine print, uh, kind of like a standard form lease. Now, uh, what would that do? It would mean that we would be back to a world, like a 1950s world, where all you need to do is look at one number, which is the uh, interest rate, and you're done. Pick the lowest one because all the other things are the same. Now, notice this policy isn't saying everyone must take such a mortgage. It's that if you want your mortgage to get this easy label, then it has to have the same fine print and it has to be comparable to everyone else's. And your reasoning behind this is to avoid that kind of confusion in the minds of people about what it was they were actually buying that, that leads to that terrible spiral of, uh, of debt in the, in the big short, the, the film you featured in. That's right. I mean, th- there were lots of mortgages with like teaser rates and that would reset to LIBOR of all things. And it would be impossible for anybody to know exactly what they were in for. So is this the ideal mortgage to your mind? Are you signing up to this, Philip Coggan, both perhaps for yourself but also as an idea? Or is this pie in the sky in an era when there is such competition in financial services in the mortgage market that people are always going to look for little ways and advantages to get more clients? I think it would help most people are baffled by financial details. And there's an asymmetry of knowledge between the people who sell and the people who buy. People are staggeringly poor at estimating statistics. So only a quarter of Britons realize that tossing uh, two coins, getting two heads, has a probability of a quarter. A survey 10 years ago found that half of people in America thought that mutual funds had guaranteed returns. So given that the complexity of finance and the lack of education of people, you have to have some kind of rules to try and address the asymmetry between the sellers and the buyers. We won't eliminate financial crises as a result, but we might reduce their effects. It's interesting that the title of your latest book is Misbehaving, Richard Taylor. The making of behavioural economics that sounds fairly sensible. But misbehaving, it also starts out with a 
quite engaging story of your own alleged misbehaviour when you're sitting with a colleague and he, he extrapolates from the fact that you're quite lazy, he claims, and you seem to churn out quite a lot of books, um, that you're, this, is, this is rather a good thing and he thinks that you have in some way used your laziness or let's say your unwillingness to work a long day to good effect. What did you learn about yourself from that? This fellow you're referring to is my friend Danny Kahneman, uh, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist. He still claims that this was meant as a compliment. I'm not so sure. I think he was just saying that I uh, was rather selective in the kinds of things that I was willing to work on. You point out, Philip Coggan, that there's a passage in the book that appealed to you where the psychologists uh, in, in a room in which this behavioral approach to economics is being discussed remain stunned in disbelief, wondering how their economic department's colleagues could have such wacky views of human behavior. That made me wonder, Richard, whether the psychologists were right and that you might be taking too narrow a view of what's motivating people. Well, I think the psychologists were right because they were agreeing with me. And economics was behavioral until rather recently. Keynes was a thoroughly behavioral economist, and one can give him credit for inventing the field of behavioral finance. Chapter 12 of the general theory might be the single best thing ever written on the subject. What do you like about that? Just tell me in a nutshell. General theory in a nutshell is always a challenge to, to set our guests. You know, he has this famous example where he says the stock market is like kind of beauty contest. Apparently, they used to have in London in the subways back in the 30s, where there would be a poster with pictures of 100 attractive young women. And the contestants, presumably all men in black suits, guessing which six would be judged the prettiest and as he says, the object is not to say which six you think are the prettiest or even which six others will think are the prettiest, but which other six others will think others will think others will think. And he says that's the way he thinks about the stock market. And I think that metaphor is exactly apt. Philip Coggan. What the markets are is behavioral. So people are not particles in a physics experiment. They see what is happening and they react to what is happening and they change the fundamentals. So another example of I'd like to use sometimes when I talk to people is a game where you ask people to estimate a number between one and a hundred and they have to get two thirds of the average guess. And you might say, well, the average will be 50. So therefore, your average guess is 33. But if you think it through, everybody will say 33 and go to 22. If everybody was the professor or Daniel Kahneman, you'd come up with an answer of zero because you get to the reductio ad absurdum through this. But everybody isn't, doesn't think like that. So the answer isn't zero. It's often 20 or somewhere between 20 and 30. So life isn't fair. You, you try and treat the markets and the economies as everybody was logical, but everybody isn't logical. I once played that game in the FT for two business class tickets to the US. The, the, the winning guess was 13, not zero. And if someone's only trained in economics, they will say, oh, I know the Nash equilibrium is zero. Everyone will surely guess zero. So I'll guess zero. I can tell you zero has never won in that game. And it really pinpoints the weakness of economic theory, which is assuming that everyone is as smart as the smartest economist.
What about the impact of populism, the rise of populism that we're seeing in Donald Trump in the United States, perhaps here on the left in, in Britain with a sort of left-wing uh, take on uh, populism from Jeremy Corbyn and indeed in, in France and many other parts of Europe. Does that mean that the tide is turning against nudge-type technocratic tinkering with our behaviours and perhaps also with the way that we look at ourselves, Philip? I worry that that is the case. So the managerial approach to economics, the, perhaps the Tony Blair, Bill Clinton and so on approach is has lost its appeal. Uh, people see centre-left and centre-right governments and think they're all the same and they're part of an elite. And we're moving away perhaps from nudge to thump where uh, Donald Trump comes in and it's all the fault of someone else who we need to punish, whether it is foreigners or immigrants or people of one religious group or another. And so the subtleties that the professor talked about might be somewhat lost in the debate after um, November. I think there's a completely different way of looking at this, which is the people who are attracted to Trump are, I would say, voting with the primitive part of their brain. It's even more important that we do economics based on Homer Simpson rather than Spock. Homer Simpson would be an avid Trump supporter and Spock would have it all worked out. Richard Thaler, Philip Coggan, thank you. Well, that's it for this week's edition of The Economist Asks. If I could give you one nudge, it would be to get in touch with us on Twitter at Economist Radio or via email to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.